make sure that uh, that program doesn't contain controversial subjects and uh, you're not impolite to people. No, definitely not, Dad. You know me. I'm never, <laughs> ever controversial or yeah, impolite. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Welcome to Conversations with your lovable, never pisses anyone off, ex-Muslim host, Ina. Keeping it non-controversial. Welcome to episode 53. Today we're going to be discussing the Hindu far right. I've got Ravi here with me, and Ravi is someone I've known online for several years. He's an Indian immigrant to the U.S., an atheist, familiar with the horrendous directions online movement atheism has taken, and someone generally in the know about the Western, alt, and far right, all of which puts him in a good position to comment on, compare, and contrast both far right movements and how they're rooted in extreme anti-Muslim sentiment. Hi, Ravi. How's it going? Hey, Aina. How's it going? Good, good. Thank you for having me. Thanks for coming on. And also, I forgot to mention, you're a vegan too, so that will be interesting. <laughs> yes, uh, let's let's get, get that out of the way right at the start. <laughs> yeah, okay, guys, I had to have this <laughs> vegan on. So, uh, <laughs> No, I, I say it'll be interesting because um, of all the beef conversations we'll be having. Yes, yes. Um, yeah, y- you know, the reason I came to you for this is because I see you commenting on the... Hindu far right a lot online, and uh, there's some interesting dynamics which overlap with the alt right, from what I can tell. I mean, recently I saw this uh, person tweet about how Hindus need to do their dharmic duty of reproducing more uh, so as to uh, not get overtaken by the Muslim birth rate, which is totally like, you know, the white genocide bullshit you hear all the time. Yeah, yeah, that's uh, it's a really, really common talking point. It's part of this whole narrative that, again, you see on the far right as well, this feeling of constantly being under siege, even though you're overwhelmingly the majority and no one really poses any threat to you. So, yeah, there's a lot of talk about birth rates, about how the Muslims are reproducing really fast and the Hindus are not, and how they're going to be overtaken and how they're going to be, you know, subjects of a Muslim rule ruler again and that whole, you know, the usual stuff. It's yeah. just it's just the same thing, but Hindus saying it. So, yeah, and it's so interesting to me. Well, interesting and depressing to to see, um, you know, fellow brown people <laughs> spouting white genocide bullshit. You know, and um, it's just it's sad because when I wasn't familiar with the Indian right, which I am now, because. Online, boy, do they ever come for you? Oh, yeah. um, <laughs> if you. I think I think they might actually be the worst of like all the far right Twitter, you know, hellscape regions of, of the internet. I think like of all my encounters, they've been by far the worst. Yeah, that, that might just be me. I don't know. They're definitely worse than Islamists because I think Islamists are not as organized and as uh, savvy or polished in their rhetoric, so they won't entrap you in longer conversations you'll see someone saying something stupid and islamist and be like mute rock idiot and there'll be like three or four of them yeah yeah i have noticed that the hindu nationalists again of all this all the sort of far-right movements online they always tend to attack in like huge numbers so and they have these massive uh accounts as well yeah yeah you get tweeted and then you're screwed 
Yeah. And what you were saying about the polished, you know, the more polished people is usually a mix. So there's like one polished guy and then 50 people just tweeting incoherent like stuff. Yeah. So it's like, (laughs) it's a mix of both, but I've like, just in terms of strength and numbers, um, they seem to they seem to be worse than than even the alt right. Yeah, I that's, mean, that's I, just my experience. I guess being of Muslim background in the West, I encounter alt right trolls and far right trolls speaking about Islam, especially online, more than I do like Hindu far right trolls. But I have encountered them, so I don't I can't really gauge what's worse. But I have seen that one once they come at you, oh my gosh, yeah. it's like. <laughs> never ending and you know what's really weird is that they often are are like you know oh well i'm an atheist too and they like adopt these like terrible talking points from like the online movement atheism stuff they're often fans of sam harris and right it's just it's so bizarre yeah they're, they're fans of all these people to the extent that they can borrow their talking points as something to use against Muslims. So the minute Sam Harris says something, you know, derogatory about Hindus or Hinduism, they're going to denounce him. Which he doesn't often do. Yeah, I I don't think, I I mean, I mean, he probably has some or the other, but definitely not as much as, um, uh, as, as Islam. So, yeah, yeah. so, you know, that's, you know, so they, you know, it's understandable that they have no problem with people like Sam Harris, but you know, they, so the more militant Indians or atheists, they would they would hate a lot more. So because they yeah. they tend to focus on Hinduism as well. Yeah, but like atheists who are actually like you know right. secularists and not Hindu nationalists. So describe right. to me this phenomenon of Hindu atheist that's like very rooted in Hindu identity. Right. So I guess that's one of the things about Hindu identity is that it was never primarily or entirely a religious identity. It's always been a sort of ethno-cultural identity as well. So, I mean, just to take my example, growing up, I was never religious in the sense I didn't have any beliefs about gods or supernatural agents or any of that. Um, But growing up, if you'd asked me what my religion was or, you know, what I I identified as, I would have just said Hindu without thinking. Yeah. Because it was more of an ethnic identity than anything else. It's sort of like Jewish, but, you know, I I don't want to push the parallels too much, but there's some similarities there. Um, So it's, you know, it's not, it's really not surprising that, um, there's a lot of atheists who are, um, you know, who are quite happy to call themselves Hindu nationalists because they perceive it as a sort of ethnic identity as well. It's not. It's not about religion. It's not about theology. So a lot of people, when they think about Hindu nationalism, they think it's like, you know, evangelical Christianity or you know, like very ultra-religious groups in the West. But that's not really a good comparison. So a better comparison, like you said, would be the alt-right. It's much more of a sort of blood-and-soil nationalist movement than a sort of theology-based movement. Right. Um, Even though there are some, like, secondary texts and stuff that I've read that have some pretty terrible caste-related, bigoted prescriptions in them. Oh, the, uh, the Manusmriti. Yeah, that's right. Right, right. So that's one of many, many, many secondary texts. Um, and you'll find lots of just outright horrifying stuff about caste and women and all of that. Um, and what, what Hindu nationalists do is they'll say something like, well, at least this is what I've seen. They'll say something like, well, we don't actually believe this stuff and we don't think we should follow it. But it was still progressive for its time and it was better than anything 
something else than existed for its time. So we should still be proud of it or something like that. Right, right. Um, like I've heard like right, yeah, that's, say that's, the same as well. Yeah, that's that's a fairly common defense. So they, they feel the need to sort of reflexively defend anything that's part of their Hindu identity and culture, no matter how how outrageous it is. And they know it's ridiculous, but you know they kind of have to engage in these mental gymnastics just yeah. to just to preserve that sense of identity. And it's interesting because the same charitableness isn't afforded to Muslims defending the secondary text of the hadith, for example, no, you know, which are no, awful no, as well. No. But yeah, those are categorically just beyond the pale and can't be defended under <laughs> any any circumstances. But you know, when it comes to these texts, you have to be like really nuanced and right. you know, look at the context <laughs> right. and all of that. And also, they'll say like, "But it's not the main text; it's the secondary text." I'm like, "Yeah, but so are hadiths." Right. right. Yeah. So, I mean, I never know enough about Hindu scripture to really get into it with them, but uh, I did notice right. this. Yeah, and the thing about the problem with discussing Hindu scripture or even Hinduism as a religion is that there really is no such thing as, you know, as a unified religious community that mm-hmm. you can call a Hindu community. And, you know, especially, well, there's, you're beginning to see some of that now, but at least, you know, historically, there was no really, um, there was no u- unified religious community. And especially for lay people, um, you know, the kinds of practices they, they were involved in and the, you know, the ritual uh, ceremonies they took part in, the gods they worshipped, none of that was really rooted in some sort of universal, sort of legalistic text. It was always based in very sort of paro- parochial traditions and customs handed down, you know, over generations. So yeah, and that's hard ma- for Abrahamics like me to kind of wrap my mind around fully, you know? Right, exactly. And it's interesting because there's, there's actually been a lot of, you know, recent work in the sociology and anthropology of religion that, that says that we probably sh- shouldn't even apply the category of religion to these pre-modern, especially pre-modern pagan societies. I mean, of course, it depends on how you define religion. You can define it in a way that applies to them. Mm-hmm. Um, but our everyday usage of the term is so caught up with all these connotations that are very specific to a sort of, you know, post-Reformation, Protestant, you know, Abrahamic and later Enlightenment ideas of what a religious community is um, that don't really map on to how pre-modern, you know, especially pagan societies actually worked. I mean, this is it's not just India. Um, it's true of Japan and Africa, mm-hmm. and even even like pre-Christian um, Greece. Mm-hmm. Um, their sort of cults and their whole uh, set of traditions. They're not religions in the same way that, you know, Christianity and Islam and mm-hmm. Judaism are religions. Mm-hmm. Um, now, this is not to say that texts didn't matter to anyone. Um, there's usually a small class or caste of, you know, philosophers, theologians, scholars, monks. And their whole life is organized around, you know, scriptural exegesis and doctrine and very narrow sectarian identities. Um, and for them, texts and, you know, doctrine and theology matter a great deal but for most people and lay people they didn't have that sort of text-based understanding of how mm-hmm. to operate in the world and they didn't have like rigid you know exclusivist religious identities either it was a lot more fluid and mm-hmm. fuzzy um yeah which so is why you don't whole- see probably the the kind of violent sectarianism that you do like in islam for example right uh, you mean between uh, between different like sub schools of um, 
yeah. uh, of the tradition. Yeah. Um, there are, you know, a few incidents that have been recorded, but again, since it was the sort of entirely text-based understanding was limited to a small cast of people, you won't see widespread sort of religious violence of that sort. You'll see other sorts of violence. You'll see like caste um, yeah. violence and ethnic violence and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah. And, and the interesting thing is that this was even true of, you know, Muslims and Christians in sort of pre-modern India is even when they adopted, you know, a set of practices that would mark them out as a specific community. So, for example, if you're a Muslim, you know, you might have a specific way, you'd have specific cultural markers associated with that, right? So you'd dress a certain way, you know, perform some kinds of worship, maybe avoiding certain kinds of food like pork, that would set you out as a specific community. Mm -hmm. But even after adopting those practices, it doesn't mean necessarily that you get rid of your previous practices. So you might still participate in a whole bunch of quote-unquote pagan rituals. Um, well, yeah, I mean, Pakistani was, weddings are a great example right. of that, right? Like, we are, we have so much, like, uh, that borrowed from our Hindu roots. Uh, I'm sure right. piss a lot of people right. off <laughs> just by saying that. But <laughs> Exactly. Yes, and if you look at, like, um, the seasonal rituals that usually happen in a, a village level or a great example of this um, historically, and there's lots of records of this, these seasonal offerings to the gods, um, usually those involve the entire village community. So every caste involved has some sort of role to play in the ritual. And at the end of the ritual, they're also, you know, rewarded with, you know, whether it's, it's usually food or money or some sort of token of acknowledgement that you performed your services as part of this, you know, this ritual offering. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, how important and, you know, how privileged you role was in these services depending on your caste, where you were in the caste hierarchy. But the interesting thing is that Muslims and Christians, or people we would today recognize as Muslims and Christians, had roles to play as well. And they were, you know, they were awarded the end of the ceremony as well. So this idea of sort of exclusivist religious identities is a very modern uh-huh. um, uh, phenomenon. And you, there's like, if you look at the British records where they're trying to classify people into these neat boxes, lay people especially, uh-huh. um, you can see that they're really annoyed that they're not able to do it because <laughs> there's no real line. But you can't really say, well, these people, you know, Hindu or Muslim or Sikh, there's just, you know, a syncretic mix of practices. Mm-hmm. And, uh, ends up being pretty arbitrary really um, yeah. that in fact that actually heightens um later on heightens sort of ethnic and religious conflicts what does sorry the the lack um, of classification uh, or the the sort of imposing these classifications and um exclusive identities when they weren't there before that actually you know made it easier for these sectarian conflicts uh, to, okay yeah that makes so, sense. yeah yeah yeah, I mean, uh, even now, like, there's tension at Pakistani weddings, especially now, actually, after the whole, you know, Saudi Arabia indoctrinating Pakistan thing, um, as we try to, like, some of us try to be holier than thou, more Muslim than thou, they're, like, rejecting the more colorful and fun parts of Pakistani weddings, the rituals that are taken from Indian roots and, you know, trying to be more Arab. When right. our roots aren't yeah. Arab. Right. It's this whole idea of purifying your your whole, you know, your practices and getting rid of any pagan um, influences. And interestingly, you, we have the exact reverse going on in India right now where any sort of signs of Islamic influence or yeah. people are trying to remove those. So Yeah, and which brings me to a topic I really wanted to discuss with you. How the Taj Mahal is being politicized and, and not getting funding and going to waste away because 
some people view it as, you know, too Muslim to look after, even though it brings in tourist money and stuff like that. And then there's the whole, they want to change Muslim city names in the state of Uttar Pradesh, which is also very sad and depressing. Yeah, this, this is, it's really what their whole end game is, right, is to get rid of any sign of, because for, you have to think of it from, from their point of view to really understand what they're trying to do here. For them, any Muslim symbolism, so, so they consider, you know, all those years when they were, when the ruling class was predominantly Muslim, they think that whole period was just a period of, like, humiliation and slavery and Hindus were just treated like, you know, garbage and it's that whole period is something that we need to forget about, move forward from, and so we need to get rid of any sign of, you know, that influence as far as possible. And of course, you know, when once we actually consolidate power, you know, we either cleanse, ethnically cleanse the Muslims or make them some sort of second class citizens, nice. blah, blah, blah. But but yeah, that's so it's it's you know, it's 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 really sad, but it's it's not surprising. It's exactly what you would expect you'd expect them to do and you know now that they have a power hindu nationalist yeah they have a hindu nationalist prime minister nothing's going to stop them from trying yay yeah but it's so sad that that's the level that hate can go to that you take one of the most uh you know recognizable monuments and just let it go to waste just not give a shit about it just because Sometime, historically, long ago, it was, you know, Muslim. Right, right. And there's, if you notice, um, they usually um, make up stories about how oh, there was originally a Hindu temple there that was demolished and replaced. Oh, no, I this. haven't yeah. heard that. <laughs> oh, they, they do that for like every monument, you know. They just make, like, I mean, so th- this practice of building monuments on top of previously existing structures is, you know, that's that's something that has been recorded. Yeah. But with these people, it's like any you know Muslim monument that you pick, they'll like create like make pull pull the story from nowhere about how oh it was actually a temple that the invading Muslims destroyed and then they built this uh, Muslim thing on top of it. So that's you know that's like an additional justification. We're not you know we're not destroying. We're just trying to take it back to the way it was initially. So we're entirely justified. Oh um, dear. That's yeah. That's um, that's that's really really common. Um, I don't think they they actually they've actually talked about destroying the the Taj Mahal um, yet. No, so but what I'm saying is they don't give it funding and stuff like that. Yeah, so yeah, like yeah. Wither and yeah. waste when it's. But like I would I wouldn't be surprised if you'll find at least like a bunch of people say that oh there was actually a temple there or they might even say that it was originally a temple or like just weird stuff like that that makes no sense but. It's like it's standard through a standard Hindu nationalist. Um, yeah, I mean, yeah. I, I've heard like you know Islamists talk about destroying temples in Pakistan, whatever is left, and and it's just it's so. I just I cannot understand for the life of me because to me all of that is part of my history, you know, and all the different pieces, even, you know, colonial British buildings, there's some really beautiful ones, which is unfortunate, they aren't being looked after as well as they could be, you know, if they were in a wealthier country. Yeah, um, it's, it's really sad, because they can't, they refuse to see anything that's not, that doesn't fit their sort of narrow understanding of what's um, Indian or in- indigenous is just is something that has to be purged. Um, yeah, they can't they can't look at history as this you know broader 
picture of different people interacting um, in different ways. And some of it was, was yes, was violent. Some of it was unfortunate, but you know, not all of it was. And there was lots of, um, there's lots of good stuff and, you know, plenty of good, good things came out of the interactions as well. But um, oh boy, you're gonna in, you're gonna get attacked. Of, <laughs> no, yeah. but we're not <laughs> we're not saying who you are. So yeah, yeah, you won't get attacked on Twitter. Then I will. <laughs> oh well, but that, I mean, but you know, you will. So yeah, of course. Yeah. Uh, why can't I just do like podcasts about non-controversial stuff? I mean, you you promised your father you wouldn't. So <laughs> I know every week I promise him. <laughs> it just doesn't work out somehow he knows me so he wouldn't be too surprised he says the same stuff about my art he's like why don't you paint landscapes and flowers what is this weird shit you know? well but at least we can test test my hypothesis that they're the worst of the worst in terms of social media uh, so yes. you can tell me if um if you're you know once you once you actually air this if your experience with them is you know better or worse than with um with the with the others oh yeah oh look forward so to it's that a nice, yeah nice social experiment that we can conduct here. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah okay so tell me more about the roots of the hindu far right and it's uh you know attraction to western fashiness and the love for hitler and nazism yeah yeah i think i think it makes it would help to actually understand the hindu identity itself um because you can't really understand hindu nationalism without it um so you know we, we know that hindu was not you know was a geographic term initially it just meant people who live in and around the indus river right that's mm -hmm. all it meant um initially and it was never a label anyone self-identified as um and then over time you know especially under muslim and muslim rule and you know with with certain christian missionaries they start using the term hindu just to mean pagan you know pagan indian people um basically so anyone who's not muslim not christian is is in, in india is hindu um it's just this ethno ethnic label or cultural label um, at mm -hmm. that point and then in the medieval period, you start seeing a few instances of people self-identifying um, as Hindus, usually as setting up the Muslims as the other. Um, it's about, oh, we've been conquered. We're going to reconquer our holy lands and, you know, consecrate the, the, our shrines and all of that. Um, so you see like a few instances of, of Sanskrit texts and the like where people actually identify as Hindu. Um, but again, like I said earlier, it's important to remember that what's in the text doesn't actually uh, reflect what the vast majority of people think and feel um, because again these texts are monopolized by a very you know narrow cast of people and then you know so that happens and then in the 19th century um, you have this you have uh, what emerges as a reform movement by it's mostly a class of intellectuals um, at this point so what they're trying to do is they're, they see themselves as fighting back against a mostly Christian onslaught at this point because it's, you know, the colonial period. You have Christian missionaries pointing out, you know, that Hinduism is idolatrous. It's, um, you know, there's all this pagan stuff, there's superstition, blah, blah, blah. Um, so they respond by consolidating a sort of new Hindu identity, which is based on, well, they cherry pick a few texts and say these texts represent Hinduism. And if you actually look at these texts, they preach the same things as, you know, the Abrahamic religions preach. So they preach, you know, monotheism, they preach no idolatry, stuff uh -huh. like that. So it's obviously it's interesting they're trying to me always the, uh, you know, 
this is idolatry crowd when they kneel at the at a statue of Jesus or they you know go round and round a black box and say it's not you know this is all anti idolatry and it's like mm, have you seen yourself lately? Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's you know it's always idolatry is always conveniently defined as something the other person does. Right, right, um, exactly. But. But yeah, so you see this, it's very clear that there's this new identity being constructed as, you know, as a response to the challenge they're facing from, um, from what they see as Christian missionaries. Um, but it's still, you know, so you see the beginnings of people self-identifying as Hindus and, you know, trying to create this new religious identity. And it's, sort of, you know, it picks up. So that's like a sort of proto-Hindu nationalist phase. I'd say this is like the late 19th century. Mm-hmm. Um, and the beginnings of what we today recognize as Hindu nationalism, it can largely um, be traced back. Well, no, well, yeah, I'd say, so there's this guy, there was this guy called um, Vinayak Savakar. He was, um, interestingly, he was initially a sort of militant, anti-colonial, sort of revolutionary. He was involved in, like, bomb throwing and stuff like that, for which he was arrested by the British. And when he was in prison, he noticed a lot of things that he did not like. So he he saw the rise of uh, Muslim nationalism, um, especially, you know, during the the First World War. But he was Um, throwing bombs before that. Yeah, he was throwing bombs before that. He was trying to, you know, he was trying to liberate India, all of that. Um, and the British threw him in prison. Um, and that's where he writes this um, writes this text where he actually, where that's the text that defines Hindutva, which, you know, which means Hinduness, which is like the founding text of, um, of Hindu nationalism. And he's bothered by the rise of Muslim nationalism as well. So around the term of the First World, World War, when the caliph, inter- uh, the Ottoman caliph was... Um, was abolished by the British. There were widespread protests among Muslims in India. It was called the Khilafat movement, mm-hmm. and he he took this as you know evidence that Muslims are not loyal to India. You know they're like this fifth column that they're serving foreign interests, and if we let them have any power, they're gonna you know we're gonna go back to all those centuries of slavery we suffered under Muslim rule. Um, so the priority here is defining you know the Hindu identity, consolidating power and ethnically cleansing um, Muslims. Um, he's very open about this. Um, nice. I appreciate yeah. when that <laughs> Yeah. So there's, you know, and he was an open, like you said, he was an open admirer of, you know, um, of fascism in Europe. He saw that as a model to follow um, in India. He praises, you know, Hitler and Mussolini, and, and not just him, the other other Hindu nationalists after him as well. Um, and the interesting thing about Savarkar, the guy who wrote this this founding text, is he himself was not religious at all. Um, he was an atheist. In fact, I think he even declares himself an atheist um, in that text. Uh-huh. Um, he was an atheist, uh, I'm pretty sure. He thinks that the caste system should be abolished because it's something that's dividing Hindus. Um, so they need to get rid of these these sort of feudal divisions and come together as a modern nation state. Again, nationalism, of course, is a very recent thing um, that was, again, in South Asia, it was very, very recent. Most people didn't have a national identity at all. So he's trying very hard to construct one. So he thinks, yeah, we have to get rid of caste um, because it's dividing us and preventing us from forming a nation. We have to get rid of, um, you know, a lot of the superstition. He, did, he doesn't even have a, like, he's even pro eating beef. So he thinks all of that is good. Hmm. So again, for him, it's very clear that Hindu is an ethnic, um, ethnic identity. And Hindu for him is just anyone who's, 
a descendant of the original inhabitants of of India. So, so there is a purity element to it. Yeah, yeah, it's a very so it's, so it's a racial purity, blood and soil, um, you know. Uh, that kind of thing. So the thing is, he defines any tradition that had its origins outside the you know, outside India as foreign and and the other and has to be gotten rid of. So you know, it's primarily it's mainly uh, Muslims and Christians, but again, mainly Muslims because they're a larger larger population. So that's kind of his whole. That's the, that's like the founding. That's that's when the founding ideology of of Hindu nationalism is put is put on paper. And it was circulated pretty widely while he was still in prison. Um, and then you see the beginnings of Hindu nationalist organizations like like the RSS, mm-hmm. which is a sort of which right now functions as, as a sort of paramilitary wing of um, of the BJP, which is the which is the political party. And the RSS, which are were, in power, right? Which are in power? They were, uh, came to power in 2014. And the RSS again were clearly inspired by you know the. Um, the black shirts um, are in and the fascist paramilitary wings as well, and they you know they modeled themselves after that, um, and all of this is you know entirely they're entirely you know open for for everyone to see. So, and recently the, uh, Modi actually had this event where he honored Savarkar as a, you know as a great hero. Oh, so. Wow. That's you know the, the, so the, these these people aren't like fringe historical figures that no one really knows about. They're they're idolized you know today by by most Hindu nationalists um, and and yeah so and these are like open ethnic cleansing advocates and stuff yeah open open fascists they, they there's literally passages where he praises what you know Hitler does to the Jews and says this is this is the model we have to follow here um, in India this is this is what we have to do as well yeah um, and so, someone said that after Modi became chief minister of Gujarat they rewrote texts. Modi, who's the prime minister now, um, to make Nazis look like at least redeemable. Um, it's it's entirely possible. I've like I've heard that Mein Kampf is actually pretty. It's a pretty uh, sells a lot of copies in India still. Wow. Um, so so these guys are yeah these guys are again have no have no um, have no problem with uh, with being pretty open about that stuff. So the, mo- the more polished ones, the more sophisticated ones will try to distance themselves from that because they know that they'll lose credibility to a Western audience. Um, right, 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 they, right, right. Uh, if, they, if they're open about it. But, um, it's the but, Richard you know. Spencer tactic, right? Don't be yeah, too yeah, open. Exactly. Don't let them know your power levels or your desire for <laughs> genocide right. and polish all this and sell it. Right. Yeah. Well, so there's, yeah, there's the polished front of like, you know, upper class, upper caste, you know, well-educated corporate types who are like very, you know, they, they, they very sophisticated. They try, they very often you'll see them like, um, appropriate, pardon the pun, social justice, like woke language where they talk about how Muslims and others are like culturally appropriating Hindu traditions. And like Yeah, yeah, you see a lot of that. So any Muslims dis- or Christians display any syncretism or adopt any sort of iconography or anything from Hindu traditions, which is... So like what's an example? Um, so if they have like art, um, Christian art that's sim- that's based on like Hindu art styles, traditional Hindu art styles, or songs about Jesus set to like um, the form of traditional um, Indian classical music. But would Indian is, Christians want to blend something like that anyway? Like wouldn't? Would like isn't that like a natural response if you're both Indian and Christian to kind of yeah yeah exactly create that's, something and, like that? And they've 
they've been doing that the whole time. They're they're so they're like really really ancient Christian communities in India. Who yeah. if you look at their if you look at their actual rituals and their and their you know customs are almost indistinguishable from what we would consider Hindu rituals in a lot of ways. But again, so, so th- these guys are, are like, oh no, that actually that's um, that's cultural appropriation. Um, you, you can't do that, and you know, and stuff like that. So there's a lot of this. These sophisticated people are, are use a lot of that language. That's and interesting. Sort of, any criticism they receive, um, if if you're white, if you're white, they're they're going to call you racist. They'll call you Orientalist. They'll, so they they use all of that post-colonial, you know, scholarship, that kind of jargon, mm-hmm. to um, as as a weapon. While at the same time, you know what they're what they're putting forward is a, is an openly fascist vision of, of what India should be. Yeah. So there's this weird space they're in where they're where they're you know they take what they can from like left wing and um, woke language, but but what they're what they're actually for is um, is the most reactionary stuff ever. Uh-huh. So see, I don't know about this thing's roots or you know desires for fascism, but I saw a, a recent piece saying like. Um, why straight white men hate astrology or something like that. <laughs> like, I think it was vice or something. It was so yeah, terrible. Painful. It's like, why are you turning this into, uh, you know, some form of racism to object to nonsense? Yeah. <laughs> like, I, actually, I, actually, I actually read that piece, and the, the amazing thing about it, yeah, as in it's, like, it's all, for all its woke pretensions, what it ends up saying, basically, is that, well, men are more rational and women are more emotional, and astrology is an emotional thing, and that's why men don't like it, <laughs> which is sexist. That's that's basically the argument. Um, obviously, oh, man. Yeah, so was really that written terrible. by that's, one of yeah, these... That's not uh, too far. Was that written by one of these woke... Uh, a woke Hindu nationalist? Yeah. Uh, I don't know. I don't think... No, I think it was just like a woke... Probably just like a woke white person. Um, oh, I'm not sure. Clueless but, person. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. One of those. But, uh, but you know, I wouldn't be surprised if, um, if if a Hindu nationalist wrote something like that. They're, they're all up in arms about yoga. So that's, again... I know, I know we don't like to like the whole horseshoe theory thing is kind of overdone, but like the really like ridiculous woke types who think that you know yoga, any Westerner doing yoga is cultural appropriation yeah. or whatever. Um, the Hindu nationalists say the same thing, oh. and yeah, they borrow all of that. They they borrow all of that rhetoric and say, hey, you can't you can't do this. This is our cultural heritage, and you're you're appropriating. You're you know you're 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 defiling it with your with your sort of arrogant Westerner privilege and all of that so it's, it's really interesting how how they adapt to like changing political situations yeah um, it really yeah. is interesting and <laughs> oh, frightening because yeah. yeah you know the whole islamist mra thing is also a thing and oh yeah yeah <laughs> and um there's i'm sure there, there's a lot of hindu mras as well and fans of people like jordan peterson and oh, stuff like yeah. that so yeah and uh, they appropriate uh, the anti-sjw rhetoric like you know, who wants a feminist Muslima? You know, we, right. we want our like, you know, non-feminist Muslimas. These people are just SJWs ruining, you know, our yeah. traditional Islamic marriages and blah blah blah. It's such right. garbage. And it's you know what's really interesting is that the dynamic that I see as an outside observer all the way from the West in India between the left and right is very similar to the dynamic I see between the left and right here in the West because the left I guess tends to be then softer 
on Islam and overprotective and sometimes uh, gloss over and glamorize some really silly stuff, you know, that you really shouldn't be apologizing for. But because of the, the viciousness of the Hindu far-right types, it just tends to happen that way. Yeah, yeah, no, you're right. It's exactly the same thing. So the, the understandable intention here is, you know, we want, they're, they're a minority here, they're at the risk of, you know, they're a marginalized group, um, Muslims, that is, they face violence, they face threats. So, yes, we want to we be extra cautious in, you know, uh, when, we're, when we're talking about them here. And, yeah, um, unfortunately, at times it does happen that they, you know, gloss over, you know, reactionary um, interpretations of Islam mm-hmm. or practices that they really should be calling out, but they don't, um, because they're, they're afraid that any criticism will give cover to the sort of Hindu nationalist. Um, and it kind of does, like, it's hard. It, it as, does, yeah. Yeah, yeah that's as someone who likes to right. engage in thoughtful and legit fair criticism of Islam, it's a problem that I can just I don't know how to get around in this climate especially, right? Like how do you criticize it and also not empower or embolden these types? Seems impossible. Yeah, yeah, and I you know, I, I don't really have an answer. Like I don't I mean the solution is obviously not to just shut up and not yeah. say anything about um, you but just at the have same to time, caveat everything, everything. Yeah, yeah. No, just, not for you guys. Get out of here, <laughs> bigots yeah. and racists. Yeah, it just makes the whole the whole project of act of legitimate criticism that much more exhausting. Is really that's like the takeaway I have. Is like you can still do it. You just have to like throw in a billion caveats yeah. with every paragraph. Yeah. Um, so and it's, works it's ultimately just, against their own ends that they desire right like if they hijack every single criticism with their fashy nonsense then less people in the mainstream will criticize and it's not gonna things are not gonna change or resonate because people will hold back right well but then what they'll say is oh, look the, the mainstream the left is soft on islam they're not gonna they're not gonna point any of this out so we're we're the only ones doing it so you have to you have to you know you have to you have Listen to follow to us uh-huh. so yeah yeah, yeah. So, so it's like it's like both either way you're kind of you're kind of trapped because if you do say something then they're going to just say see even the leftists are saying it so we're right yeah and if you don't say anything they're going to say aha see they're not they're not saying anything that means they're you know they're, they're trying to protect like um islamists so you know you have to put your faith in this yeah i mean so i've had my there. run-ins with the indian left too and it's really unfortunate because i think we agree on most things but you know when they go around saying stuff like malala was shot in the head because of a white supremacy and I'm like, clearly, no. I mean, fuck. She was shot in the head by Islamists because she wanted an education for girls. And then they yeah, somehow that's... try to, like, twist it into that and then make me out to be, like, this evil Islamophobe for just saying that. It gets very, very frustrating for me. And one time I did this um, week-long stint on a Indian, uh, popular Indian rotation account, um, I forget what it was called, Gender Log. Oh, yeah, I think yeah. I remember that. I think I remember that, yeah. And, oh, my God, I think it made, like, record-breaking, like, hate tweet numbers. Because first, <laughs> I came in, and the Indian right was like, oh, look, this porky, pecky, porky, pig, whatever. Like, oh they thought they God. could, like, get to yeah. me by calling me a pig because they assumed I was a Muslim or whatever. Right, why are you letting a pack oh, like, Yeah, that's a, right. Yeah. Right. Oh, I'm so offended. <laughs> so then I was like, yeah, you know what? The, those insults don't work on me, guys. Like, I, I have nothing against uh, 
pork or pigs or I'm not even a practicing Muslim. I've left Islam, so go at it. Then I started talking about my feelings about hijab and niqab, and boy, did I get it from the Indian left. Like, they called me a U-kipper and all kind of shit. Like, it's like, how do you not know the difference between a woman raised in that saying that this shouldn't continue because you know i really suffered under it and an external sort of bigoted person who doesn't like things too different from them yeah i mean it's, it's just an unfortunate consequence of wokeness where at some point people just can't distinguish between legitimate criticism and actual bigotry um, yeah and it doesn't and help the, the, that there's tokenizing now right like oh yeah there's ex-muslims that are there for for actual bigotry they are 100% down with that as long as it gets them views, retweets, whatever, whatever. So people hear ex-Muslim and right. they're like, oh, God. Right. Yeah, you can't even say, hey, guys, I was actually raised, you know, in the faith. And I have, I think I have a perspective here that you might, you guys might be interested in. But if you say that, they're, they're going to think, oh, you, you, they're just one of, one of the ex-Muslims who we all know have been allied with um, with the most reactionary aspects of um, the right of you know um, of the West here. So the West and also the Hindu and, and, right uh, in India. Yeah, yeah. yeah. People like um, I don't know if we want to name names here, but people like Tariq Fatah. Yeah, let's name a, those names. And the um, the uh, the totally legit Imam. I keep forgetting his last name. Imam Tawhidi, um, Imam of Peace. What a sweet and right, peaceful right, guy right. who goes on white nationalist yeah, yeah. podcasts <laughs> to talk about yeah. how you know violent interpretations of Islam are the most common most legit and everyone's interpreting it like that right yeah yeah extremely extremely real imam right there you know no no suspicions at all none um, he also like post pictures in a church and says how he's truly at peace all of a sudden it's like dude what are you doing you idiot yeah, yeah. but he has huge like i've noticed that he he's he has like huge fan followings in um, in india all yeah among the uh, internationalists um and yeah, Tariq Fatah, of course, and uh, I mean, I'm sure there's others, and these are just the, the names that popped in my head. Yeah, right and now. that guy, Tariq, but, he has been trying to get, like, it seems, like, Indian nationality for so long, why it's not oh happening God. for him. Oh. Does, he, does he really think that, you know, when it comes down to it, they're going to treat him any better? I don't know. It's really funny, because both these guys that you've mentioned have a a weird double standard about how Muslims should tolerate, you know, uh, blasphemy and things like that. I think everyone should deal with it. Sure. But when it comes down to eating beef, then Muslims are the ones that should compromise. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've, <laughs> I've noticed that as well. It's like, why can't they just, you know, this is just one restriction. Why can't they just, you know, compromise and, uh, you know, give in here? Yeah. But he'd never say that about, um, you know, if you say that about um, and say, well, why can't they just not draw cartoons of the prophet? He's going to call you, you know. An apologist. SJW, yeah, apologist, whatever, yeah. Yeah, it's an imam of peace. I'm looking right now at a tweet of his when, like, from May this year, when there was a Muslim lynched over suspicion of, uh, you know, slaughtering a cow. Imam has this to say. He says, a mufti in Mecca will issue a fatwa to kill non-Muslims, but won't issue a fatwa to stop killing cows, even though it could save the lives of many Muslims in certain parts of the world, because terrorists pay good money and cows don't. So, so the fact that they're getting lynched is now the, 
the blame is not on the people who are doing the lynching, but no, at no. least people who won't issue issue the fatwas. Yeah, that's the anti beef fatwas. Brilliant. It's just I mean, absurd to me how you can literally justify hate crimes by saying Muslims should be like, you know, ruling that beef is no longer permissible to appease Hindu terrorists. Yeah, I mean, and like, why can't you just flip that around and say, well, why, why would you draw? Well, if you really cared, you wouldn't draw, car you wouldn't publish cartoons of the Prophet because you know it would get the. Get it would save so killed. many lives, right? Yeah, exactly. Just, uh, yeah. Yeah, and it's absurd to me how many in movement atheism do not see through these people because they're so blinded by their ideology of anti-Islam that they actually find these people credible critics, you know, oh, what a refreshing imam, oh, what a great truth speaker. It's like, no, if he said the same shit, uh, you know, just about blasphemy, you would see through that in a second. Yeah, it's, it's like this... They, you know, correctly identify that some some people on the left will will not accept any criticism of Islam, um, and they've basically just their, their their reaction to that is to say that any criticism of Islam is is justified, no matter how bigoted or racist or, or whatever. Um, there's it's like there's no um, <laughs> rational center between the two extremes. Right. There's no uh, you know humanist principles in play here. It's just anti-Islam, right? which ties in all of these far-right actors, you know, <clears throat> from different parts of the world and how they capitalize on those talking points, on those token imams and token Muslims. Tariq Fatah was praising uh, 14 words reciting Faith Goldie, who was running for mayor. Jesus Christ. Like... I mean... <laughs> But the funny thing is that you'd see, you, you it's you'll see Hindu nationalists do that all the time. They'll they'll like retweet and like boost like the most like obviously racist like conspiracy theories about Muslim immigration and stuff like that. And like just like I mean, of course it's morally abhorrent, but like I can't help but think like just from a self interested point of view, do you I mean like that's gonna hurt other brown people too. You exactly, know that, right? right? Like, what, what? I don't know. And, so, and, and yeah. what happens once they've managed to successfully fully dehumanize Muslims? Who do you think is next? Right, exactly. Yeah. If you think they're going to stop there, um, you're just, yeah. Yeah. For anyone listening, if you catch the odd jingling coming from Ravi, uh, it's because he's secretly Santa's assistant. Yeah. And uh, Santa has um, diversity programs now, so I got. I got oh, no. <laughs> no. The white North Pole is brown now. Sorry, we, we Marxism white, is fucking with Santa. Yeah, we white genocided the elves. Sorry. Oh dear. <laughs> um. Also, maybe you can speak to like um, sort of the mimicking of the American or Western right. Like, uh, someone was telling me that the Hindu right has started like this whole fake war on Diwali narrative and so they just take a page out of that playbook and right yeah this is this i think is more recent i've been i haven't been following it too closely but i think uh, my understanding is that what they're annoyed about is um restrictions on fireworks right because it's it's let's be honest it's a huge pain so firstly um, let's the, just say what diwali is in case someone doesn't know right so it's uh, it's a very popular hindu festival celebrated and almost Almost all of India. Um, Where has Trump different, forgot to mention the Hindus. 
Did right. you see that tweet? <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, and I was like, I was waiting for all the the Hindu nationalists to finally turn on Trump. But, did they? Yeah, I don't know. I didn't. I didn't check. I'm, I'm hoping they did, but it wasn't big enough if they did. Yeah, yeah. Huh? I think he. I think he actually issued another tweet where he actually included Hindus. Oh, did so. he? Oh, okay. Yeah. No, actually, there was like there were two tweets without Hindus. It's really funny because yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, why would you tweet a second time and still not include them? But, yeah, he's like, congratulations, um, this is a holiday, something like that, that, you know, what was it, Buddhists and Jains. Jane, yeah, yeah, everyone except Hindus. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, how do you, I don't know, that's, how do you mess up that bad? But, but yeah, anyway, it's this, uh, Diwali is this really popular festival um, celebrated by in most parts of India, fireworks are a big part of it. Basically, there's there, and you know, given just given the population, given how bad the pollution and stuff already is, um, the quality of air and all of that, I think they're trying to that the government is trying to impose some restrictions on on fireworks. And even if not the government, there's just like activists, environmental activists, leftists, and the like. We're Cultural trying to point Marxist, out that, you mean. right, postmodernists. Um, <laughs> well, actually, the um, the uh, the. Hindu nationalist equivalent of that is, I've noticed they have they have their own term. It's Chrislamo Kami. So it's like they've it's like a conjunction of all the different ideologies that they're. It's what um, Islamo Kami. No, no, Chrislamo Kami. So Christian Christ Islamic, oh, Christian Islamic communist, all of that rolled into one. This, these are like the three forces threatening threatening Hindu hegemony. So oh, we'll just wow. roll them all together. I'm surprised they didn't include the secularists threat. as well. Well, I think that falls under Kami. Oh, so, right. Okay. Uh, fair yeah. enough. Fair enough. Yeah. Okay. Um, so the Christ Lamo Kamis are trying to restrict fireworks, and that's the right. Evil. That's the yeah. That's the the war the war on Diwali. Um, and it's not just it, like they're constantly there's a sense of victimhood, and which again is you know classic sort of part of far right ideology in general is. You're, when you're obviously the dominant group, you keep acting, or you keep projecting the sense of being under siege by, by you know, vague threats that can't really be defined um, in any real sense. So you have to invent these um, ideas like cultural Marxism or Christ Lamukamis or whatever. And also, um, you like decry victimhood culture at the same right, time. Right, right, right. When wow. actual victims of, of violence complain about about you know being victims, that's that's just you know them being soft and soft victims. But when the dominant group, who's really under no threat, complains about you know non-issues, you know that's that's totally legitimate. They're just you know they're just being um, they're just using their voice. Yeah, it's like uh, do you guys have a Indian version of Quillette that has all these takes for how poor Hindu? Upper caste men are being screwed um, over. There's, I mean, there's. I'm sure there's quite a few. There's one, um, one of the more popular ones is called Swarajya, and they they're like the online Hindu nationalist, like the center of um, all their propaganda. Um, and they're like a mix. They have some like really. Some of the people who write there are like part belong to the sophisticated class of people that I was talking about earlier. Mm -hmm. Some of them are a lot less sophisticated, but it's like a mix of um, all these people. And it's like the, um, it's what every sort of young Hindu nationalist, aspiring Hindu nationalist has to be, you know, that's what they're reading. Um, mm. If they want to, if they want to be on top of their game. Yeah. And there's a lot of Trump support, right? There's like a lot of oh, Indian yeah. American Trump support. And yeah, I mean, anyone, anyone who hates Muslims is, um, is our friend. So nice. 
Yeah. Um, although I think I'm, I'm not sure. Like I didn't look at the actual statistics of um, that. They, they, they'd done some polling on who Indian Americans as a whole voted for, and I'm I, I know it was still overwhelmingly Democrat, mm-hmm. but uh, I'm not sure what the exact percentages were there. So yeah, but surprisingly, um, there's uh, still a, a significant number of Trump supporters. Oh yeah, Hindu. There's like an actual group called Hindus for Trump. Um, Cute. There, I mean, there's yeah. the Muslims for Trump, so why not? No, really. Yeah, I'm, <laughs> no, I'm not surprised by anything at this point. So. I know. 2016 <laughs> onwards has been very, very, very strange. Yeah, there's going to be an illegal immigrants for Trump next. I mean, I can't like. It's so absurd, like the kinds of alliances we're seeing, um, but. That's just the way it is. Yeah, it's it's a strange world now. People are just, uh, I guess, joining hands based on who or what they hate most. Right. Yeah. And as long as there's some sort of common enemy, that's that's all they need. Yeah. Like Islamist MRAs clearly hate women <laughs> more than white supremacists. Yeah. So they're fine oh, tweeting yeah. out white supremacist pieces and shit. Aren't there like some like people who actually consider themselves white too? Like some like I don't know, some like Arab Islamist people who think they're basically white, or I may be mixing that up with someone. Yeah, else, you know, but. there's one guy that I've heard of that's an Egyptian white nationalist <laughs> YouTuber, but I haven't seen enough of it to to consider it like a group. It may very okay. well be. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised. Um, Isn't there some sort of Aryan thing among Indians as well, right? Like, yeah, I mean, it's 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 weird because the actual Sanskrit word, it just initially just meant something like noble. Um, so it was basically it was like an ethnocentric term. Right? Like, so pretty much every culture had like there's us and then there's the barbarians. Um, uh-huh. So that was the sense in which the term was used. It was just us people who you know follow our customs and have the similar languages. You know, there's us, and then then there's the barbarians. Um, and there was no caste course, element, like of skin color. Um, there probably was, but I don't think that that term Arya itself was actually related to skin color directly, because you can see like brown Indians look on white Europeans as barbarians. Basically, um, they're not they're not considered the white Europeans are not considered Aryan. Um, they're they're the outsider. They're barbarians. So it's much more oh. of a sort of, ethnic and cultural thing than um yeah so if you look at yeah if you look at like um medieval and early modern texts of how they portray europeans it's not it's not flattering in the slightest they're basically unwashed filthy barbarians so um it's it's not and and again they didn't really have a a race the concept of race back then you know skin color based prejudice you know definitely did exist um, and it's existed in most cultures, as far as I can see, um, or at least a lot of cultures. Um, but again, the, the word didn't have this racial um, connotation to it, which it now does. Uh-huh. The interesting thing is that the more um, internet-savvy, 4chan-type Hindu nationalists God, are the ones who so actually... Sad. that's a thing. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's pathetic. But they're the, guys who, they're the guys who actually go with the more explicitly racial talking points of the Western far right. So for them, it's not just a cultural thing. So they'll, they'll talk about things like race and IQ, right? They'll talk about that a lot. Um, uh, and they'll, so and so Sam they, Harris. <laughs> right. 
And these people have turned it back into a sort of racial term um, again. So you'll see like the 4chan equivalent of Hindu nationalists talk to each other and call each other Aryans and stuff like that. It's 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 bizarre, it's but so um, but it is, it is a thing, yeah. <laughs> and you know, what's weird is that here in Toronto, in the greater Toronto area, there's like, you know, school regions and there's one where there's a lot of, uh, I guess, Pakistani, Indian, like, so the Muslim population is high in one school board region. And there, there's been, like, controversy about um, the sex ed curriculum, which, fair enough, like, you know, religious parents didn't want their kids learning about progressive sex ed and consent mm -hmm. and things like that. And so there were a lot of Muslim parents that were outraged about it and kept their kids home from school completely, I think, justified to uh, oppose them on that. And then there's this other issue of um, Friday prayers in schools, Right, which in that region, I guess, has been a long-standing thing that just happens. But now there's like a bunch of Hindu right-wing activists that have come together with these uh, Western right-wing activists to oppose the Muslims. And they talk about things like, uh, we don't want to see our society crumbling under an... Islamic onslaught and you know immigrants to Canada themselves are like you know in the article she's described as she bristles as at being identified as Indian and believe others should have the same mentality you came to Canada assimilate here she says her voice growing raw and it's like <laughs> this other activist dude who has no kids who go to this school district uh, he says he has no ill feelings about Islam. In fact, he once had a surgeon who was a Muslim. His wife, <laughs> as is his wife's hairdresser and his son's best friend. How could anyone call him anti-Muslim? Yeah, <laughs> it's like the one or two Muslims you've encountered yeah. in your life. You know, it's just simply a question of principle for him. If public is funding schools, then they must be kept secular, which, you know, I, I technically agree with, but... Ontario, our province, funds an entire Catholic school board. So if this principle is to be applied evenly, then it's right. not just about Juma prayer or Friday prayer in some schools. Um, it should be the, the entirely funded board that should be opposed, in my opinion, first, right? Yeah, I mean, if you're if you're really committed to secularism, then that's that's the position, that's the consistent position. But of course, they're not. It's they're not. Just, it's um, just anti-Islam. Yeah. Then they'll like they. I've I've seen like them do like weird stuff where they say, well, it's Catholicism and Christianity in the West is not really a religious thing. It's just part of our cultural heritage. So it's not really a violation of secularism. Whereas Islam, of course, is something completely no, foreign and it alien. Is. They have like so. religion classes. They have like. Uh, you know, prayers, right. and uh, where do you think the Islamist parents, if not given a choice to, if if they struggle sending to private Islamic school, that's their top choice is a Catholic right. board school because they have the conservative, you know, homophobic, anti-choice, anti-sex right. values. Yeah. So. <clears throat> 
And you said that there's there's a whole bunch of Hinduists who are in on this whole movement as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, I've noticed like I've noticed a similar thing with like a lot of Hindus who are like constantly appear on Tommy Robinson's um, yeah. stuff and boost him a lot as a shield um, for being called r- racist, right? Right, and their whole thing is the same thing as oh, um, we're scared that you know we've assimilated here, but the Muslims are not, and we're scared that we're going to have Sharia here. So you know we're sta- we stand with Tommy Robinson and that that whole. That yeah, whole thing. that's um, exactly it, and it's 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 terrifying to see minorities throw other minorities under the bus like that. I am, you know, for the record, not really keen on prayers in school at all, especially when they're segregated by gender, especially when it's assumed that the women, uh, the girls, will be praying behind the boys, which I assume is what happens. Um, but I don't see it as like we better stop this now or it's sharia sharia has taken over and the catholic school board can do whatever it wants meanwhile right it's it's, it's a strange sort of sharia but (laughs) (laughs) it's like (laughs) proportionality on these things really yeah isn't there in a way i guess it's not surprising it's just one it's a minority doing you know to get ahead itself allies with the dominant group against um, another minority yeah. it thinks that's that's you know way for like that's a way to gain upward mobility yeah um, so much that's, of, of that's really this what it is. is about power balances and imbalances right it's something that people in the atheist movement often do not understand or have a very literalist reading of right so if you say something uh, horrible about a black person it's literally exactly the same as saying something something white people when it's not because of the context the history the power balances and imbalances and so a lot of these disagreements are based on those i find yeah and it's i've it's come to the point where i've heard people say oh just saying white people is a slur oh yeah Um, yeah yeah there's a far-right atheist guy who was uh i retweeted something about him being a white guy like trying to explain something to me and he said I was retweeting racial slurs against him. Uh, and this guy, like, defends Milo and, uh, you know, all kinds of gross far-right people. But just calling him a white guy is a racial slur. <laughs> I mean, what can I say? But, yeah, so some interesting overlaps going on between the Indian far-right. Well, I say Hindu far-right because there's a couple of Indian far-rights. I'm sure there's an Islamic Indian far-right as well. Uh, yeah, there's there's um, there's no, like, shortage of reactionary movements right, right, in India. Right. So you're, you can, you know, you don't have to worry about not being inclusive. <laughs> <laughs> no, I just wanted to be specific. Right. Right. <laughs> So, yeah, I mean, I think we covered some, some good ground for basic understanding. Yeah, I think, um, I think we've, um, we've touched on you know, most of the important issues. Um, but, yeah, now all we have to do is wait and watch the, um, the Hindu nationalist horde descend. <laughs> Yay! <laughs> Before I let you go, let's let's quickly talk about beef. We said we would talk oh, about Oh, yes, it. we didn't we didn't talk about beef. Yeah. Yeah. So, I want to know your thoughts, you know, as a vegan and as a non-religious vegan, you're not coming at it from any religious Hey, hey, hey veganism is my religion. <laughs> yeah, kind of, I bet. But um it must be strange to see like that hijacked by far-right bigots who are violent, murdering, lynching people, all in the name of, 
you know, so-called no violence towards animals. Right. It's, it's, it's an interesting, um, difference. Um, the, the associations people have when they think of, of vegetarianism or even, well, veganism is not really much of a thing in India or well, it's growing, but it's still, you know, still not really well known unlike yeah. vegetarianism. But so in the West, um, being a vegetarian or vegan is associated with a kind of, you know, it's like a hippie thing or like yeah. a general, in general, sort of progressive left-wing counterculture type of thing. Um, but it's Though the there opposite. Are, there are some fashy vegans out there. Right, right. But, you know, on, on average, mm-hmm. in general, um, that's that's kind of what people associate vegetarianism with. But it's the exact opposite in India, right? So in India, being vegetarian is associated with, you know, conservatism and, you know, traditionalism and, you know, upper caste orthodoxy. That's what people think vegetarianism mm-hmm. is. And, you know, it is, you know, that's 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 not a, an incorrect evaluation. Right. Um, there are people who won't rent apartments to people who eat meat. People right, who right. Because issue rape uh, threats to people who eat meat. People who won't right. sit at the same table, drink out of the same, you know, glasses that those people use. Things like that, right? Right, because and that's because it's um, it's much more. It's not just out of an ethical concern for animals. Um, it's this whole notion of ritual and bodily impurity um, mm. that's associated with meat, with meat consumption, um, and that's you know, and again, that's that has ties to other things like caste. Um, so you know, traditionally, the caste that that people associate with acts that involve um, you know, so so for example, butchers or you know, leather workers and castes like that that work with. Um, with animals and dead animals or a lot are considered, you know, entirely ritually impure. Um, and it's actually not just a Hindu thing. It's a thing in Buddhism as well. Mm-hmm. So in like places like, you know, Korea, Japan, Tibet, you have like outcast or, you know, so-called untouchable groups who are mostly in these kinds of professions. Mm. Um, and it's the same, the same is true of, um, of South Asia as well. So there's this association with, you know, people who deal with dead animals on a regular basis. Um, and also people who, who consume meat, all of that is, you know, is ritually impure and being in the presence of meat or being in the presence of people who eat meat, all of that is considered, um, you know, defiling to your, to your, you know, spiritual or ritual purity. So you want to, you know, stay as far away from that as possible. Which is and like again, another weird supremacist element, right? Right. It's, it's just a caste, caste, um, caste supremacist thing. Yeah. Um, and it's the, you know, the high caste mostly, although not entirely, um, mostly the Brahmin caste that's um, that has this sort of view. But the point is that that's what vegetarianism is in India. It's not this sort of hippie mm-hmm. concern for animals. Um, and most vegetarians in India, you know, are not vegetarian by choice in the sense that they think about, you know, animal cruelty mm-hmm. and animal rights and they come to that conclusion. They're just kind of raised vegetarian and they grow up vegetarian. In fact, you know, it's interesting because a lot of my a lot of my Indian friends grew up vegetarian. And then in their later, like in their teens, they started eating meat as a sign of um, rebellion mm-hmm. against, you know, their parents, against conservatism, against tradition. Whereas I kind of went in the opposite direction. I actually, you know, my family, we'd eat meat pretty often. So that wasn't something, you know, we never had a problem with that. But I eventually stopped eating meat. So it was a, so it's, it's just interesting that there's that there was that mm. different, these, these different but trajectories. But did yours, like, um, start with rebellion or... Uh, did, did I stop eating meat as a as a form yeah. of No, it's no. I just I just started looking into literature on okay. you know animal rights and stuff like that, and eventually um, eventually gave it up. But but I recognize that you know vegetarianism and veganism mean different things in in mm-hmm. India, and that puts me in kind of a weird spot. Yeah. Um, especially you know, 
because it's true that being, so Jordan Peterson's oh, all beef diet is a big no no, huh? He should spend some time in India um, <laughs> see how people react oh, to that. Yeah, really. um, um, but again, again, it's you know, it's again, it's worth noting that the vast majority of Indians are do eat meat. It's again, vegetarianism is restricted to as few elite castes and groups of people. Again, if I'm Overly, if I'm if I talk about you know meat and being vegan a lot, that w- that that's going to be seen as giving cover to these caste supremacist yeah. um, points of view, and especially with things like and with things like beef, there's the additional religious um, element to it as well, right? Yeah. Um, again, this whole cow protection thing is just it's just another way of establishing your dominance over. A religious minority, uh, Muslims in this case, yeah, mostly, um, predominantly. And um, oftentimes, the accusations of cow slaughter are like false. I've also read, you know, like yeah, kind of yeah, like yeah, the yeah. blasphemy accusations in Pakistan. Exactly. Yeah, it's just a, it's just a pretext to whip up a sort of mob um, that yeah. goes after goes after these people. Um, yeah. So again, and again, it put, puts me in a weird spot because like the, the the protests, the response to that has involved like. Um, like public beef, like where we have this event where we all eat beef oh, in public yeah. as a, as a, as a form of protest. So um, and the, you know, the people doing this are people I consider, you know, allies. And yeah, any other event, I'd be there. It's just I'm not sure what to do in these cases where, you know, I have my yeah. own um, view on these things that I can't. So I just kind of I try. I just don't. You know, maybe a, a bit of a cop out, but I just generally don't talk about. Um, that that whole that whole subject because I know it's it's not going to end well. Yeah, <laughs> and and it just must be like so conflicting and weird inside. It's like it's kind of like how I feel about talking about Islam now. I mean, I still talk about it a bit, but it's like ah, oh, the people who are like the loudest right. critics are so fucking awful. Yet I do think this thing deserves to be criticized. Right. You and, know. Yeah. Um, and. But you know, one thing I do point out is the is the obvious like hypocrisy of the of Hindu nationalists in this case, where if they really did care about um, cows, then they wouldn't they'd be entirely vegan, right? Because the dairy industry in India, um, just like dairy industry everywhere else, is is atrocious. You know, just the way yeah. the way they actually treat cows is you know if you actually watch footage of what it's like, it's yeah. you know you won't it's not something you're going to be able to watch. So if that's that's really what was motivating them, then it's they'd like be like the halal uh, anti halal. Uh, activism, right? Exactly. Well, right. Right. Yep. Tommy Robinson and stuff are like, I'm like, okay. So, Tommy, are you vegetarian? No. Uh, right. Okay. So you can kill and eat a cow, but you're just against other people doing that. In a, pr- I mean, yeah. Of course, there are some. Uh, there are ethical concerns, and uh, you know, I guess to do with the way the method of slaughter and stuff like that. But I think yeah, but, ultimately, but that, if you're murdering slaughter. and eating something, it kind of you do not have the higher ground anymore. Yeah, and the idea that like traditional like Western non-halal forms of slaughter are, are like this humane, yeah. um, you know, completely bloodless uh, affair is just is ridiculous. Again, all you have to do is actually look at you know, watch some of the footage and you're, you know, it's horrifying. Um, but, and you know, it's kind of similar to the, you know, to the way people react to like that. There's that, um, 
there's that dog meat festival in China, right? Where they talk about, oh, it's barbaric the way they treat these dogs. Uh-huh. Um, but it's really not that different from the Oh, dear. You know, okay, now we're going into <laughs> real vegan territory. <laughs> well, no, I'm, I'm just trying to point out that people aren't really thinking in terms, really thinking in terms of concern. Um, because what they're trying to do is there's this other... Um, that they want to, they're trying to establish dominance over another. And they're just using this as a um, as a pretext, which is really what it is. Um, whether it's cow slaughter or whether it's halal or whatever it is. Mm, yeah, yeah, I can I can agree with that. I mean, I'm not a meat a big meat eater myself. Like I hate meat. I find it gross um, most of the time, unless I can eat it in a form where it doesn't remind me of what it is. So, but I I just. I don't commit to being a vegetarian either. I barely just, eat meat, meat, but yeah. Just, t- just t- take take the plunge, join the dark side. <laughs> I probably just You're, attracted a whole other group of people to me. I mean, I've received yeah, I wanted, emails from vegans saying that I'm like a slave owner. So. Uh, <laughs> You're not one of those. Um, you're you're a nice vegan. You don't ever get super aggressive with me, even though I don't eat meat. Yeah, I'm wondering if um, you know if we're you know if we're gonna attract like angry meat eaters now that I've said stuff about veganism. That that would be interesting to watch. <laughs> They're more douchey, aren't they? Like more douchey yeah. than anything. Like ho ho, like <laughs> I'm just gonna eat sixteen steaks now to piss you off. Yeah, yeah, you know. Yeah. <laughs> oh dear. I'm destroying my health to own the vegans, basically. Yeah. Well, is it maybe yeah. maybe that's what Jordan Peterson's all beef diet is rooted? In. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's like just the consistent own the, um, own the SGWs. Like yeah, his his whole like he's like he's crazy. He's like super anti. Of course, he, like he's anti any progressive thing. He's anti um, animal rights activist as well. So yeah, I think yeah. yeah. So maybe his whole all beef diet is just like an extended. Um, you know, protest against um, animal rights activists. Yeah, he claimed, like, you know, stopping eating greens made him stop snoring. (laughs) (laughs) That's such bullshit. That's extremely, extremely scientific. I mean, (laughs) I don't see any, you know, any issues there. Um, (sighs) Yeah. Okay, so now that we've attracted a few... um, groups towards this chat and you're not going to be tagged into it yeah I'll, <laughs> <laughs> i'm just gonna let you deal with the with the follow right i'll let you know i'll let you know which is worse okay. yeah I, yeah I, my my money is still on internationalists are, are gonna be the I mean, you you recognize that they're the worst but okay we'll, we'll see. see all right <laughs> okay well thanks again ravi for joining it was yeah, an thanks, interesting thanks for having talk. Me. okay take care yeah you too Thanks for listening to another episode of Polite Conversations. You can support this podcast by sharing the shit out of it, making some noise about it, or contributing via Patreon. Patreon.com forward slash nice mangoes. No Ian mangoes. Also, you can follow me on Twitter at nice mangoes. If you want to make a one-time donation instead of a monthly Patreon one, you can do so via PayPal. NiceMangoes.blog at gmail.com. Remember, no Ian Mangoes. If you've got an interesting story and would potentially like to be a guest, you can email me there too. Music